Today's episode is sponsored by Amy Berrickman, founder of Indigo Junction Sewing Patterns and Books. Visit amyberrickman.com to find vintage imagery, sewing, and craft books, and her new Vintage Notions monthly magazine. Issues one and two are now available for purchase individually and coming soon as a monthly subscription. Check it out at amyberrickman.com. Welcome to episode 68 of the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today, we're talking about sewing your own clothes with my guest, Heather Liu. Heather Liu is a Montreal-based sewing pattern designer and blogger who says that learning to sew changed her life. Heather was once a shopaholic, vogue-reading, fashion obsessive, a lifestyle that led her with a packed closet, but nothing to wear, and a whole lot of consumer debt. Then she made a deal with herself that the only new things that could come into her closet would be things she made herself. Sewing quickly took over her life, and today Heather's a successful sewing pattern designer and blogger at Closet Case Files. Heather Lou, welcome. Hi, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show. So um, I'm going to start way, way back. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in a blue-collar um, industrial town called Windsor, Ontario. So it's just across the river from Detroit. And did you have siblings? Yes, I have a huge kind of weird blended Brady Bunch family. So I have two older brothers, a half sister, and then a stepbrother and a stepsister. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of siblings. That's a lot of yeah. siblings. Yeah. yeah. And what a lot did- of Christmas presents to make. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what did your parents uh, do for work? So my father, um, it started working in when he was in my, like my mother got pregnant when she was 16. So they got married, like basically right out of high school. And so my father had gone to university and then he had gotten a job temporarily working at one of the auto plants, but he basically, the story is that he worked two days and like had a psychological breakdown and could never go back again. Um, and so he started, ended up starting a life insurance business. And so he's been a financial planner, insurance salesman for the last 30 years. And my mother um, had owned, my grandfather owned a jewelry store and my mother took over that and ran that for about 15 years. And then um, she left the store. They kind of had a falling out with my, uh, one of my aunts and has been kind of just doing like a variety of random things since then. Um, And it's close to retirement now. Were they artistic? Are they artistic people? My mother is basically Martha Stewart. Uh, (laughs) So she like, if, like Christmas at my house is the most insane. Like there's literally, there's not a single surface in the house that isn't covered and not just like Christmas junk, but like some beautiful antique, like artisanal thing that she like put a whitewash on. Um, and she used to build all of her own furniture and like, we always had these beautiful houses. We moved around a lot, but every house was always so beautiful because she was very, very artistic and creative. Um, and she sewed and she, yeah, incredible. My father does not have an artistic bone in his body. So I kind of get all of that from my mom. But maybe technical to a degree. I mean, doing financial planning, there's, there's a piece of technical stuff going on there. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think I got my kind of like, if I have any business acumen, it came from my father (laughs) and like my kind of work ethic definitely came from him. He has that very, um, kind of Protestant work ethic, nose to the grindstone, like work until your hands bleed kind of thing that I definitely, I think, inherited to some degree. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you go by Heather Lou online, but Lou is not your full last name. Is that right? No, my last name's Luenza. And the reason that I, when I had started the blog, um, 
you know, like blogging is kind of weird and personal. And I initially was thinking, well, if somebody, if like a future employee Googles me, like I don't necessarily want them to find my sewing blog where sometimes I'm talking about personal stuff. And so it initially started like that. And then as the business and stuff happened, I just, you know, the internet can be a weird, scary place. Uh, and I just thought for my own kind of like protection and personal safety that it would probably be better to have a moniker, but it's not something that I'm, you know, like people kind of know what my last name is, but at this point it's just become a nickname and I kind of like Heather Lou. And so I've just stuck with it. Yeah. I think that's interesting. It's an interesting concept of having a different name online. I have a friend who, um, she got married and, uh, her name online is basically, um, a nickname for her first name. It's the nickname she goes by, but it's not her full first name. So it's a nickname. And then her last name, uh, is her maiden name. So, um, so it's like her nickname and her maiden name is her online persona and her full name and her married last name is her real life persona, uh, which is kind of fascinating. So it's like she has two different, and it, it does sometimes feel that way, right? Like online, you're one person and in, in person, you're somebody else to a degree at least. And so having two names sort of makes sense. I really like it. I do feel like it creates like a separation between church and state. Or something. <laughs> right. Like I can have this online persona that's, but it's, it's, you know, it is who I am. It's a part of who I am, but ultimately like I'm this other person too that exists in the real world. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's, if, if it's protected me or not in, in the, the long run, especially now, cause it's not really a secret, but, um, yeah. I don't know. There's some emotional protection perhaps too. So I think it's cool. Uh, not that it was intentional, but yeah. <laughs> <That's neat. laughs> so, um, so what did you study in school? Would you, did you study, I know you were a commercial interior designer. Did you study interior design in college or? Well, in university, I, I got a women's studies degree, um, and then it turned out they weren't giving out jobs to feminists. Uh, so <laughs> Just sheerly based on their feminism. Yeah, yeah. So when I moved to Montreal, I had a couple of years of floundering in my early 20s where I didn't really know what I was doing. And I just like, you know, I catered. I was a bartender. I sold vintage clothing on Etsy. I was a cleaning lady. Like, I just did a lot of random stuff. And in Quebec, college is free. So university is very inexpensive, but like trade school is free. And so I thought, well, I'll go for a semester and just see, you know, I had been interested in design for a long time and I kind of oscillated between doing interior fashion design. And I thought, well, I really love interior design. It means I won't have to work in the fashion industry, which I had a lot of friends doing and I knew it was a bit of a nightmare. And I'll just see how it goes. And I ended up really falling in love with it. And so I did a three de- three year degree in interior design and then had, yeah, ended up working as a commercial interior designer for almost six years. Wow. Okay. That's neat. That's neat that it's free. I didn't realize that. That's kind of cool. I'm um, not in all of Canada, just in Quebec, because we're a little bit more of a socialist province. But uh, yeah. <laughs> that is cool. That's a neat opportunity. Um, yeah. Okay. And so you took the job as the commercial interior designer right out of out of school then? Yeah, basically, like, I started working almost before I was mm-hmm. finished school. Right. And you were designing the interior of shopping malls. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, we did a little bit of everything. So I had, you know, I've designed restaurants and cafes and office spaces, but the bulk of my, the, of our firm's business was doing high-end shopping centers. So um, I, we did most, most of our projects were in North America, but I ended up, I did a really crazy project um, in Qatar, this like multi-multi-million dollar luxury shopping center that ended up just being empty because there weren't enough people to shop there. But yeah, most of the stuff we did was shopping centers, which was, uh, I mean, from a design perspective, it, it got really boring because people treat shopping centers like, you know, people, kids jump on furniture, like everything had to be bulletproof. So you couldn't really, there were really strict parameters that you had to work within. 
Um, and then on top of that, you know, like I was designing these churches to consumerism at the same time that I had kind of discovered sewing and had made a promise to stop buying new clothing. And so I would be wearing, you know, uh, a dress in a meeting that I had made from a vintage pattern using vintage fabric and then go into this meeting with, you know, the owner of the shopping center that was this like multi, multi-million dollar project that was just generated to get people to buy consumer goods. It was just this like weird uh, dichotomy that I had to live in for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And did you consider, you know, staying as a interior designer, but just working more like on homes and sort of working for yourself? I mean, right, that was another path, right? You could have like opened up your own interior design firm and kind of gotten out of that rat race, but into something that was more similar versus opening up a sewing pattern company, you know? Yeah, that was absolutely an option for me because I mean, I loved my, my boss and I liked my office, but it was, there was no, I was only going to be able to move laterally if I'd stayed. And so that was, if I had lived in a more Anglophone city, that probably would have been something I considered. But in Montreal, um, you know, Anglophones, which are English speakers make up about 10% of the population. And I speak French, but not fluently. And in order for me to kind of start a business like that, it would have been a really, it would have been really challenging. And I knew a lot of people that I graduated from that had tried to do similar things. And, you know, when you work in a business like that, you're constantly chasing work. Um, and I wasn't interested in, a job where I was going to have to go to networking events two to three times a night or two to three times a week to try to like drum up work. Um, and then the other thing was the kind of work that I was really interested in doing if I was going to stay in interior design was did tend to be smaller projects like cafes and restaurants. And those projects are very emotionally loaded for the people involved because generally it's like a restaurant owner who sunk his entire savings into this project. So it, they can be very emotionally fraught projects to work on and the budgets aren't really huge. Um, and, it, you know, I know a lot of people doing that as well. And so that didn't seem very appealing to me. So when I started getting a little bit dissatisfied at work, I thought I'm either going to have to move to Toronto and, you know, start working for another firm or this thing that I had started, I had released the bombshell pattern and it had done really well. I thought as an experiment, I'll just release a second one and see how it did. Because I had everybody in my life was like, why don't you do this? Like you're, you know, you've started all these businesses. You're clearly entrepreneurial. Why don't you think about doing this? And I was like, no, no, no. This is just like a fun thing I do. I don't want to sew for a living. And I just kind of had this moment where I was like, maybe I should try. And so the second pattern did really well too. And that was what kind of started the gears turning um, that I could, that this could, could become a business. Right. Okay. So um, I want to get to, we're going to talk about both of those patterns and um, and how they kind of shaped what went on afterward. But um, I just want to go back a little bit to Montreal itself. So you live in Montreal and I, uh, I just wondered what the art and craft scene is like there. Montreal is an interesting city because it's, you know, this beautiful metropolitan city. But we had a referendum in 95. Um, So the province of Quebec, there's a big nationalist um, movement here. And so they wanted to separate and become their own independent state. And so we had a referendum in 95. And it ended up really coming down to like 51% voted yes and 49%, sorry, 51% voted no and 49% voted yes. So when that happened, it was incredibly... Uh, it was a very contentious time and it was a very difficult time to be an Anglophone in the province. There was a lot of um, controversy. And so basically the economy, all of the Anglophone businesses, which up until that time 
um, English Canada, I don't want to give like a whole, <laughs> but it's kind of important for the, the, the history of the city. English Canada had kind of dominated business. And so a lot of Anglophone business left Quebec. And so we basically went into a recession. And so only in the last 10 years have we really started to crawl our way out. And because of that, the city is incredibly, it's very, very affordable. Um, my rent like is like, like when I tell New Yorkers how much I pay in rent, people want to murder me. So it's a very, it's a really affordable place to live. And so as a result of that, there's this huge artistic community. There's tons of musicians, tons of designers, tons of um, artists, creatives who live here. It can be a hard city to live in if you're kind of career, if you're aspirational career-wise and you're an Anglophone because there just isn't as much opportunity unless you're fluently bilingual. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's a very inspiring city to live in and it's, it's a very affordable city. So it's kind of a great place. If you're a creative entrepreneur, I can't really imagine doing what I'm doing anywhere else. Yeah. It sounds like an affordable place to run a creative internet business because you're not dependent on the local population to be your customers. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, our income tax is very high. That's one thing. And Quebec is kind of known for not being very friendly towards small business. Um, so that's kind of something that I struggle with, but I think it kind of, I'm it's compensated in other areas for sure. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, so I know that you are a person who really loves the sewing blog community. And I wondered um, back maybe five years back when you were still working your full-time job and starting to sew, what was the first uh, blog that you discovered? I think it... Ooh. Or what was the first one that you the one that remember? I really- I remember when I discovered Sally O's blog, because up until that point, I was reading lots of blogs, but a lot of people at that time were doing more vintage inspired sewing. So, you know, like Gertie, for example, um, she probably had one of the, she had the most popular blog at the time. And a lot of people were doing that kind of more vintage inspired sewing. And I remember when I found Sally O's blog, she was doing very kind of contemporary, cool, um, sewing and she had this really amazing voice she was really funny and charming and we just started commenting on each other's blogs and we became really good friends and I think that started the blog rolling in terms of the blog <laughs> the blog the ball rolling in terms of me um reaching out to people in the community and establishing relationships with other people who are doing what I was doing mm-hmm. and how did you reach out to her I mean I think for a lot of people, they, they see somebody that they really admire and they sort of are afraid to take that first step. So, I mean, you really enjoyed her voice. You enjoyed her style, what she was making and posting and how she was talking about it. So what did you do to sort of say like, hi, I'm new on the scene and I'd love to know you? I think I just left a comment. And every time she posted, I left a comment. And I, I think you know, if you do that four or five times, eventually, you know, most commenting systems have a way to link to your blog. So the person's like, oh, this person keeps commenting. Or in, in the beginning of your blog, because at this time, this was like five years ago, so I don't know how many people were commenting on her blog. But, you know, when you're getting starting out, you kind of check out everybody who's commenting. How did this person find me? And so then I think maybe like two comments later, she commented on my blog. And then we ended up commenting back and forth for like months until eventually I think we like started emailing and talking on the phone. And we ended up going on like this kind of like platonically romantic trip to New York together, having never met. Um, But it was just, it really did start with comments. And I find, you know, a lot of people that I've met online, that's just how I met them. They didn't comment once or twice, but they commented many times. And you're like, you keep seeing that name kind of crop up. So you go and check out their blog and then you start commenting on theirs. And I really think that's the best way to kind of reach out and meet people online. Yeah, I agree with you. It's happened to me many times um, on both ends. And a lot of times it's because the comments that this person's leaving are like really intelligent. They're yes. like interesting or 
I don't know, they have a certain perspective to share that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise. And when you continually see that and it's coming from the same name that you've never heard of before, you can't help but be intrigued. Absolutely. So it's not just to come up being like cute or yes. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I was thinking about this and here's what it made me, you know, consider. And like, it's a, it's a real comment. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, I would say the thing that I've noticed, um, I feel like comment culture is kind of dying down a bit. I think especially because a lot of people are reading blog posts on their phones and I use Discus and I know that Discus isn't the most like iPhone friendly um, tool when you're commenting. So I was looking back at old posts and I feel like I have more comments on posts from three years ago than I have now and I have three to four times as much traffic. Um, I just, that that kind of comment culture is is slowing down a little bit, which makes me sad. But I find the same thing. I, at this point, I'm reading so many blogs that I just don't have time to comment as much as I'd like. So maybe once a day, two, three times, maybe the goal sometimes is like two to three times a day, I'll leave a comment, but it doesn't always happen. Right. So it's kind of bums me out a little bit that we're not commenting as much. But Let's, let's talk about blogging then because, um, so you started your blog closet case files back in, I think, 2011. You can correct me yes. if that's wrong. Um, yeah. and, um, so just, uh, how did you come up with the name Closet Case Files? How do, I think my one of my best friends, Mark, and I are big punners. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to start this sewing blog. Like, help me think of a good sewing pun. Because I, and this was having not known that the sewing pun blog title is like a cliche at this point. Um, and so we were kind of punning back and forth and in Gchat. And I don't remember how it ended up coming up, but I was... I don't know if I, I don't know what I was reading. I don't remember what, but it was like closet case files. And it was just this kind of alliterative double meaning thing. You know, obviously closet case um, is a, uh, an expression for people who haven't come out of the closet. But uh, then I was thinking case files. I don't know. It was really one of those random things that just comes in your mind. And to this day, I question whether or not I should have renamed my company um, when I decided to make it more of a thing. But at that point, I looked into doing it, um, and it was just my Google was my Google like SEO rankings were really good. I had this kind of identity with that name, and I just decided to stick with it. Um, yeah, you're and- talking to somebody whose um, online name is Walshy Naps, okay? So <laughs> I and who's been blogging since 2005, and therefore can never change it. So I understand. Um, yeah, it was so hard. Like, especially when I went to print, I'm like, I'm printing closet case, like <laughs> on a packaging that's going to be at a store. Like what, it, like I really, I, and I'm so divorced from it at this point. I don't really know what people think of when they hear it for the first time, but it is funny because I think at least when I Google closet case, it's not John Travolta. <laughs> like it's my business that comes up. So that kind of gives me a weird little thrill. And you, you know, you, you like to blog. I mean, that's the I, sense that I get from you is that you like writing. You're a good writer and you oh, like you. like you like to blog. Am I right about that? I love blogging. Um, if it made financial sense, I would blog every day. Um, if I had the time, I would do it every day. Um, I really, really, really love writing. And I love, especially I've discovered in the last year, I really like um, teaching. And I'm trying to get better at breaking down steps and breaking down processes for people so that they can do it themselves. Um, like, and right now I'm hosting, I don't even know why I did this. It's like, I was thinking this today as I was shooting a video. Um, 
I'm hosting a, a knit along for the Snoqualmie cardigan from Brooklyn Tweed. Like they're not paying me. I'm not getting free yarn. Like I just decided I want to make this sweater. And if I want to finish it this year, I should host a knit along on the blog. So now I'm like generating all of this content on the blog that is not about my, I'm not promoting my business. <laughs> like, um, I don't even know how many people are really participating because it's, you know, it's a knitting project. It's, it's a very random decision I did. Um, but I just really like, I really like blogging. It's probably one of the, you know, next to seeing people wear the designs that I've come up with. It's like my favorite thing about my business. So I think maybe uh, what keeps it one of your favorite things is that you allow yourself to do the things on it that you really want to do. So in other words, this knit along, as you said, it's Brooklyn Tweed's business. It's not yours. You're not getting paid. It's not some sort of sponsorship. Um, It has nothing to do with even the materials that you use, much less the patterns that you create uh, for your business. But it's something that you really want to do. Like it holds you accountable to finish the sweater and it, um, it's just fun and interesting for you to do. And so that becomes the blog content for better or for worse. But I think the for better part is that it's what keeps you blogging because it's interesting and it's satisfying. For sure. And I think the second thing about that is that I don't ever want to have a blog that's just about my own self-promotion. I don't, you know, I feel like there's people can you know, I know a lot of people who kind of switch from a hobby blog to a more professional blog, and it would become solely about promoting your own product. I just kind of get bored and tune out. And I, the goal would be that my blog, even if people never ever sew my patterns, it's still a place that they can come and get something interesting from and be inspired or learn something. Um, and they don't necessarily feel like they're being marketed to. Uh, so I don't know if that's kind of subconsciously a reason that I started this knit along that's taking up so much time. Right. And sometimes you're like, what am I doing? But at the same time, I do think... I don't even know how to knit. Like I'm learning... <laughs> I, was like, teach, I, wrote, I made a video today teaching people how to cable and I just learned myself like a couple weeks ago how to cable. I'm like, who do I think I... Who do I think I am to be like teaching anybody to do this? But it's just... I don't know. It's just... I feel like I absorb information and then spit it back out again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a compulsion. I understand. I want to pause things for a second to have a word from our sponsor. My name's Amy Barrickman. Uh, my business is Indigo Junction. Indigo Junction has been in business for 25 years. So we have a depth of content and knowledge of the industry. So it's really exciting kind of yeah. in the new world of DIY and exploring what we can do there with um, our product development. We're always looking at trends um, and trying to come up with patterns that are, you know, easy, but at the same time have a nice aesthetic. And we love, you know, working with all different types of fabrics, um, whether we're designing for our garment line or we're working on um, looking at prints for maybe a more functional, um, you know, storage pattern for storage or for the kitchen um, we do a lot of recycling and upcycling from denim is one of our favorite materials. And we've done a lot with recycling denim as well as menswear. Um, we have some great patterns for recycling men's shirts into aprons and even children's garments. Well, we're really excited about um, a line that we're calling Indigo Essentials. And this line is um, a capsule wardrobe of garments that have a contemporary style, clean lines, a modern aesthetic. And we're, we have everything from a swing jacket to an asymmetrical 
sleeveless top to a shift dress to a vest and then we'll have a really nice pant pattern that can mix and match with the tops so we're really excited about indigo essentials and um, looking forward to a new um, packaging and uh, kind of a new brand within indigo junction with the essentials line that sounds great Um, and when will that be available for people to check out we will be introducing those patterns at Quilt Market. This summer, they'll be available um, both in stores and online. Super. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Indigo Junction. And now back to my chat with Heather. You mentioned earlier about blogging that it, if it made financial sense, you would do it every day. Um, and you do have a small independent ad program going, by which I mean it's not Google AdSense or another network-based ad program where they're placing third-party ads in a certain spot that you've designated on the site. It's actually independent businesses saying, I'm going to purchase this ad space and create um, you know, create the banner ad for you, and then it's just going to be static there for the period of time that they've like rented <laughs> on yeah. the sidebar um, or, or at the top or whatever, wherever it's going to be placed. So, so how is that ad program going? I mean, do you feel like, is it worth it? And realistically, or is it sort of more, is it more trouble than it's worth? Or is it a good revenue generator? Does it affect your motivation to blog? Well, I would actually say I actually do a a bit of both. So I have the, um, yeah, like I have a section of my page that is just for independent small businesses. And then I do also have a little bit of Google AdSense ads. Oh, you do. Yeah. And I've experimented with a couple different networks. Um, and it's tricky because a lot of ads these days are animated. And so I'm so sorry if anybody's come on the blog and seen an animated ad, I, I had to like, I was working with a company for a little while that I had to stop working with because they couldn't guarantee that that wasn't going to happen anymore. And the last thing I want anybody is to come on my blog and be like, Ooh, like, why is that little man dancing at me? Like this is completely <laughs> unrelated to what I'm looking at. So I do have a little bit of Google AdSense and I would say like per month, I'm probably making, I don't know, maybe a hundred and hundred, hundred or $50 a month from Google AdSense ads. Like it's not very much, but over the course of the year, it's like $1,200, $1,500. Like it really does help. I'm, I spend a lot of money doing blog design and maintenance and stuff like that. So even just to offset the cost of operating this online site. And then the ad program that I have, I actually, I'm going to be focusing a little bit on this year on expanding it because I do get decent traffic and I feel like it's a good space if people are interested in promoting their business And, you know, along with that, like I like offering giveaways and things like that. And I like promoting other small businesses. So it becomes an opportunity for me to kind of share um, information about other people that are doing interesting things online. Um, But right now, I wouldn't say it's a huge income generator just because I haven't had time to really give it the attention it deserves. I would also say that it's becoming a lot harder to advertise, um, to just do kind of traditional blog advertising Sponsored content seems to be the way to go. I'm really uninterested in doing sponsored posts. So um, I don't, yeah, I don't know. We'll have to kind of see if I put a little bit more time and energy into the ad program, but I'm not, I'm never going to be writing a post about um, Swiffer. You know? <laughs> uh, Thank you. I'm glad you're not. <laughs> that, yeah. would, that would be a disappointment. Um, yeah. Okay. And just one more blog related question. Cause I'm, I don't know. I love blogging too. And I feel like some people, you know, people sort of feel like down on blogging recently and say blogging is dead. And oh. I don't think that's true. I hope it's, it's not like people true. Saying paint, oil paint is dead. Like that's never going to happen. <laughs> I think that, I mean, it goes back to this not to cut you off, but I mean, it does go back to this thing about the, you know, how, what I was saying about kind of comment culture dying a little bit. I think that 
you know, the microblogging movement, so the desire to put on be on Instagram is is really taking over. Like I know a lot of sewing bloggers who don't really blog anymore. They're just uh, sharing the things that they make on Instagram. Uh, and that's totally viable, but I still, my blog is growing, uh, growing every year, every month I'm getting more traffic. So I, and from my point of view, I wouldn't say that blogging is dead. I just think that for people who are maybe more casual about it, it's more fun and um, easier for them to just share things on Instagram. Absolutely. And I would agree with you that my blog has never had more traffic than it has now. Um, and so it is possible to continue to grow a blog and have an active comment culture, which I have, um, and you have on a blog even in 2016. So, um, the question I was going to ask was about the pop-up because you and I had a quick conversation on email a, a few months ago, maybe about the hello bar pop-up, which is a polite yeah. pop-up. It's a slider. It slides across your page and it asks people, you know, you can have whatever you want there, but both of us have it asking people to subscribe to our email list. And um, you asked whether I thought it was worthwhile, and I said, give it a try and see what you think. You can always turn it off. So I see it's still on. So was it worthwhile? Yeah. I mean, I'm getting about 100 new newsletter subscribers a week using it. Um, so yeah, I mean, from that point of view, like it's great. And I, the newsletter was something that I was really neglecting, which is kind of stupid because at this point I'm paying like $80 a month for, to MailChimp uh, and not get, and I wasn't like even sending out newsletters every month. And so I was like, this is ridiculous. This is the year I'm going to get a little bit more serious about it. My struggle has been that, um, you know, like I love your newsletter at you. I think every week you, you, you're generating a lot of cool free additional content, like links and things like that, sharing stuff. I do that on my blog every Sunday. So I can't necessarily mimic that same kind of format. And so it has been a challenge for me to figure out a way to like write an interesting newsletter that people feel like they get value out of. And I'm still kind of figuring it out, um, but I am trying to build my email list um, just because it's an interesting, different way to be able to communicate with the people that really want you to communicate with them. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And you're talking about your Sunday, um, you have kind of what's new in sewing blogs, I think is the new name for it, but it's like a roundup of what you see happening and what um, links that you found interesting that week. And I will tell you that I click on it every single week. I love oh, it. Great. And um, it's one of my favorite things that you do. So if people haven't seen those yet, please uh, go check them out. Um, and there's a category in your blog so you can see all the old ones too, if people want to go back and, <laughs> and catch up. So, um, all right. I want to um, talk a little bit about your transition from full-time employment um, uh, to, for another company, for the interior design firm, uh, to becoming a, an entrepreneur. And I wonder if you took some steps to plan that out, you know, to say, I'm going to save a certain amount each month or um, kind of if, you, if it was planned or if there was just like, you had this bombshell swimsuit, you, you know, you made the PDF pattern, it was doing really well. And then the, you did the netty, um, bodysuit and then, and then said, Hey, there's something to this. I'm just leaving tomorrow. You know, I'm just going to jump ship and see if I can make it work. So was it spontaneous or was it planned or a mixture? I did not do that. Uh, I, I wanted to do that, but my father being the like kind of, um, sage financial guru that he is, I was like, dad, I hate it. I can't do it anymore. I can't design another shopping center. And he was like, you, what are you, he's like, you can't quit your job. You have credit card debt. Like you need to suck it up. He's like, suck it up and stay and save money. I was like, fine. And then that's what I did. I just sucked it up. I paid off all my debt and I saved as much money as I could. And then about six months later I, I quit. Um, 
with, you know, having a little bit of a nest egg. Um, and then also with the knowledge that, you know, I, I could go and cater. I had a couple of little odd jobs. My boss was totally um, supportive of me leaving. And she said, if you ever need to come back, you want to do a little bit of freelance, like no problem. I, I will give you work whenever you want. So I left knowing that I had a bit of a safety net if I needed one. Um, but I never, I didn't, I, I ended up being okay. It was kind of a little miracle. Um, I released the third pattern, Ginger Jeans, three months after I'd quit. And that pattern did well. And just the, the, between the three of them and the little bit of savings I had, and, you know, I had, was, had a couple other, like, revenue streams coming in, I ended up being okay. Um, so I, I, it wasn't until... Uh, last year that I actually had to go into debt. So I got a small business loan when I went to print for the first time. Um, and I'm still going to be, I'll be paying that off for the next couple of years. But when I first started, I was debt free. And um, I just want to touch on that small business loan for one second, because I think there's a contingent of people that would have said, and maybe they said this to you, oh, why not do Kickstarter? Um, so why, why go the traditional routes and get a loan from a bank versus having people crowdfund your print pattern? I really seriously considered it. And I talked to the two people I knew who had done it, who Christine Haynes had funded her first print run with Kickstarter and by hand London had funded their um, fabric printer with Kickstarter. And so I talked to both of them and I was really, really considering it because I was like, Oh, I don't know how these are going to sell. And to take on this kind of debt burden is a really scary thing. And I talked to both of them and I read a lot of people's experiences of going on Kickstarter. And ultimately, like, I just didn't want to answer to anybody. I, I love my customers, but I don't want to be beholden to anybody. Um, I was really nervous about giving too much access into my business. And I think you inherently just do that with Kickstarter. People feel a little bit more emotionally invested. Um, and it just also is an, ex- it's an insane amount of work. Like, it's not just like, oh, here, give me money. It's like, you really, you have to fulfill your promises to these people. Um, and I knew that with everything I had going on, that it was just one more thing that I was just nervous about. And I ended up lucking out because there, I ended up getting a, a really low interest business loan for first time kind of entrepreneurs in Montreal. Um, and it's an affordable loan for me to pay back. And I just thought in the long run, this is just, if things don't work out, if my business fails, I'm the only person I'm going to have to answer to is myself. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to, I, I, I applaud that. And I think that, um, I think that in this day and age, we're sort of taught not to try, you know, not to try mm-hmm. to get a small business loan, but to do it the new way, uh, and assume that that's the better way. And I don't necessarily think for all businesses in all situations it is. Um, so I think it's, I think it's pretty cool that you decided to, to do it yourself with a, with a loan. So, uh, I just, oh, thank you. yeah, I think that's neat. I so, feel, I feel good about it. I don't have yeah. any regrets. Yeah. Okay, good. And to hear that you don't have any regrets, cause there's also people who've done Kickstarters who do have a lot of regrets too. I mean, not that all of them do, but it, you know, there are people who do have regrets about it. So, um, okay. I want to talk about that bombshell swimsuit now, because that was your first pattern that launched the company and, um, or took it from being kind of a hobby to a company. And I think it's kind of remarkable to start a sewing pattern company with a bathing suit pattern. Um, I think it's one thing, right, to start with like a dress or like a t-shirt or something, but like a sewing a bathing suit is like a scary thing. Like it's stretchy, it's super fitted, you know? Um, so, so talk about, yeah, starting a company based on a swimsuit. Well, to be fair, I wasn't starting a company at the time. Um, I was just, I had worked on that pattern. And I, when I posted online, people were like, Oh my God, I love this. Please, please. Can you like, can you make this a pattern? 
And about a year later, I was like, oh, I think I could figure this out. Like I'm, you know, I, I draft for a living. I'm like in using all of these computer programs, like I can scan the pattern pieces. And, you know, I Googled how to grade patterns in Illustrator and I graded it myself. And initially I was just going to release it for free. And then I was like, this is taking a lot of time. Um, <laughs> I'm going to just charge like 10 bucks for it. And if I sell a hundred of these, it'll be great. Like I really, that was my assumption because you have to, it sounds silly, but like three years ago, there was not this explosion of indie designers at all. There was like Colette, Solaholic. I don't even think Tilly had released her first pattern. Um, it was not something that I thought of as an option at all. But the pattern did like really, really, really well. Um, and I think, I think a lot of people underestimate um, the market. And people, that I, 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 there's just, I don't know, it's a complicated issue for me because I know that simple sewing patterns sell really well, but I think that people who are more advanced and who want to learn and want to grow end up kind of getting the shaft because it's like, oh, it's like another shift dress or it's another t-shirt pattern. But, you know, what happens when I've been sewing for a couple of years and I actually want to, to get better? There isn't a ton of options. So I, my business is kind of since the bombshell, since I realized that there was this kind of audience and market for people who wanted to learn how to sew and wanted to sew more complicated things. That's basically what I do now. And I think I learned that from the bombshell. I mean, it did, I, I, I did a sew along and, and did, you know, I kind of helped teach people hold their hands. Like this isn't as scary as you think it is. And I think also that pattern uh, was powerful because it was kind of a vintage style. It was modest. It concealed quite a bit of flesh. I mean, if you look at like the average swimsuit, but it was really flattering and beautiful. And I think, women felt really beautiful wearing it and it ended up getting blogged a lot. And like one of the most powerful, meaningful things that have happened to me in my life is seeing women pose online in a swimsuit on the internet and, and say like, this is the first time in my life that I've ever felt like beautiful on the beach. You know, it, that pattern is very powerful for me. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. But. And you, I know you've said that um, when you sew, you get to know your body really well. Um, and you've also said that in an interview that I read that um, life is too short to hate your body. It's the only one you've got, you know. Um, and so to be able to give people something to put on that body that um, is, you know, revealing to a degree, it's it's more revealing than maybe a dress is because it's tight and it's shorter, um, but it still makes them feel like they will voluntarily have a photo taken of them and put it up on the internet and say, this is me in a bathing suit and I like the way that I look. Um, that is powerful. So congratulations to you. And I think your ginger jeans actually sort of relate to that in the same way in that making jeans is also scary, right? Like it seems like there's a lot there uh, that can go wrong, a lot of detail in making jeans. It's a thicker fabric. It's a whole different ball game. It's got grommets. It's, you know, um, and those, that pattern, I get the feeling like the bombshell has been sort of the other touchstone. For sure. I actually looked at the hashtag on Instagram uh, the other day and there was like 1800 ginger jeans hashtags where I was like, oh, God, that's crazy. Um, yeah, that pattern kind of went viral in a really, really unexpected way. I think, I think my first three patterns um, kind of filled holes in the market that, you know, there wasn't really a great bathing suit pattern. There was no bodysuit pattern at the time. There was no skinny jeans pattern at the time. Um, so I kind of lucked out in that I had an idea that um, 
didn't necessarily have a lot of competition. But the same thing with the ginger jeans, my focus was really on breaking down. Because the first time I made a pair of jeans, I remember like initially being scared and then doing it and being like, this is really not that hard. It's not as hard as you think. I mean, the finished product, you look at the finished product, it's like, yes, it feels overwhelming. But it's when you break that process down into little bite-sized chunks, anybody can do it. Like if you can sew a pillowcase, you can make a pair of jeans. Granted, the first pair might look a little like janky, um, but you're going to learn a lot. And that first pair and the second pair is going to look better and the third pair is going to get better. And then the beautiful thing about making your own jeans is that, you know, if you don't have a traditional like hip to waist ratio, buying jeans is impossible. It's, it's one of the, it's like, I think trying on a pair of, trying, going jean shopping is just as dispiriting as trying to go swimsuit shopping in terms of trying to find a pair that fit, especially, you know, I've had, now that I'm teaching the class, I have people who come in who's, you know, maybe their hip and waist are almost the same size. And it's like, what do you, there are no jeans that are made for you. There's nothing. Like I had a, a customer or like a, a student who said, you know, like basically she has to go into this store called Northern Reflex, Reflections, which in Canada is like the place that you go to get like fleece sweatshirts with loons airbrushed on them. Like it's really like, you know, not to, not as an insult to mom, but it's like a bit of a grandma store. And like, that was the only place that she could go, go to buy jeans and they still didn't fit her. And we were both kind of crying because we made, we, you know, we figured out how to make these jeans fit her and they looked awesome. And it's like the first time in our life, she had a pair of jeans that fit. And it's just, that feeling is so empowering and it translates into so many different areas of your life. And so I think that pattern has made a lot of people have that experience. And I think it's just caught on because people talk about it in this really like contagious, enthusiastic way that I'm really proud because I, I feel like a lot of people have discovered, you know, capabilities they didn't even know they had just from a sewing pattern. Right. So it's that combination of it being hard, sort of being more challenging to a skill set, not hard, but, you know, not a beginner pattern, mm-hmm. as well as something that women find difficult to sort of buy something off the rack and mm-hmm. have it fit them and look good and be feel, make them feel beautiful. And so those two patterns really hit on that in a special way, I feel like. Um, and, and that combination is like your signature. That's what your patterns are about, right? It's like I can get this and make this and it will be both challenging to my skills and will be something that is custom to me and I'll finally feel good. And this piece of clothing that's traditionally really hard to find – yeah, and now this the stress that I put on myself is like, how do I make lightning strike a fist size? Right, exactly. You know, and it's, let's it's talk hard. about that a little bit too, because um right, so what happens inevitably, and this happens to everybody uh who makes anything, it, when you make a lot of things, right, some of them do better than others. And some of them, in your case, like as you said, go viral. Like everybody's got it and everybody's talking about it. But not everything is going to do that. So um, to me, I find like the next thing you make to be the hardest one, right? The thing you make after the viral thing is actually the hardest thing because you have so much pressure on yourself um, to, you know, to get back in the chair and do, do the next thing and all the expectations that people are thinking about. So how do you deal with that feeling? I, I don't even know, Abby. I, uh, I question myself a lot. I start a lot of projects and put them aside. I've had like three patterns that I've started and gotten all the way, like almost the way to testing. And then being like, no, I'm not going to do this right now because I'm too filled with self-doubt. I think at some point you just have to kind of get going and you just have to finish it. Um, It's hard. It's really hard. And I feel like now too, there's so much competition. There's so many people doing what I'm doing that 
it's a lot harder to stand out and it's a lot harder to have original ideas and it's a lot harder to be kind of heard. So it's something that I don't really have an answer. Like I'm still figuring it out. I've got plans to release four, hopefully five. We'll see patterns this year. Um, and you know, the, you know, what they say is that, you know, 10% of what you release funds the other 90%. So if I have one pattern a year that does really well, that that'll be the one that kind of lets me float the other three, you know, the other, but you just never know which ones are going to do well and which ones aren't. That's right. And I think that that is very true. That 10% uh, idea is definitely true. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about that flood, right? There's so many indie pattern designers now. Um, even in the last, I mean, you kind of came on the scene 2011, 2012, released the pattern. I think the first one was in 2013 maybe. And so just even for, so that's three years, 2013 to 2016. So even in that period of time, you're saying that it's really changed. The scene has changed. It's become more crowded, more difficult to be seen and heard. Um, And I want to talk about that in comparison to sort of what's happened to the big four. And by the big four, I mean like Simplicity, McCall's, Vogue, Butterick. So when you look at them, um, you know, if they came to you and said, and maybe they have, and I don't know, but that said, Heather, you know, we want to license the bombshell, uh, or we want to license your next one, whatever it's going to be. Would you turn them down or would you say yes? Like what, how, how do you feel about them? I don't know yet. Um, it's something I've definitely considered. I haven't been approached. Um, I've considered approaching them because I think, you know, the benefit of the big four is that you're getting into every big fabric store in North America. It's just giving you kind of access. I've also heard that you don't make that much money. Um, so I don't know if I did ever do it, it would be with like, it, it wouldn't be with existing patterns. I think it would probably be with like a maybe similar to like what Liesl and co are doing, which is it's, it's really like its own line. But my team, I mean, I have an assistant now, but between the two of us, like, uh, we're still burning the midnight oil. Like, I, I can't imagine designing, like, an, an additional three or four on top of the ones that we're already doing. So, I don't know. It's it's something that I would consider. Um, but for now, I'm kind of happy just having my own little company. Um, in regards to the other... Late. Yeah, sorry. I, did you... I don't know if you had a question about this. Yeah, no, I was going to ask whether... Um... I guess with so many independent designers on the scene, I just wonder, and there's no way to know sort of if the buying behavior of the pattern buying public um, has actually significantly shifted and there's no way to know what their, you know, what their statistics are, the big four comparison to where they were, you know, in 2010, let's say, um, before this big flood came on. But I do wonder, you know, how it must have, you know, I, I would have to, I don't know, cause I don't work there. I would have to say that their sales have decreased because everybody, all of the sewing blogs that I follow, 90% of the people I follow. sew indie designs almost exclusively, um, but I wonder if that's just bloggers. Do you know what I mean? Like we're a yeah, self-selected group. And so yeah. that's not the majority of sewers, right? That's just this one. I don't know. It's, so it's so hard to say. It's hard to say. I, 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 I know that I have heard that they have really expanded into things like historical and cosplay, costuming. Um, so I don't know if that's a result, if that's a reaction to this kind of explosion of any pattern designs. I'm really not sure. Um but I think that the two can exist. It's not like, uh, you know, Mutual Star Wars. Expert. It's not Darth Vader. <laughs> and like we can we can exist. The two posts, like they don't have to um, exist in, in opposition to each other. I think that they can, in some ways, like really complement each other. I think that there are some things a big four that they do that they do that they do really well. Um, and I, you know, I just sewed a big four pattern myself. Um, I just think that 
independent designers are, you know, we're operating maybe in a shorter time frame. We're a little bit more nimble in terms of reacting to like trends and things like that. Um, we have more niche audiences, so we're not necessarily trying to design things that are going to appeal to like absolutely everybody. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just a different focus and it's different markets, I think sometimes as well. And you also get that so long or that, um, one-on-one kind of, you know, exactly. you get to know the designers. Yeah, that's true. There's too. so much extra, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, you know, how many McCall- patterns does McCall's release a year? Like 30, 40, I'm releasing four. So the instructions that come with mine have been tested by up to 20 people. They've been read a million times. The instructions have been, it's, and then in addition to that, I'm probably going to host a sew along and provide all this additional content. So the product is more expensive. You're paying $18 us for my pattern versus maybe one that you're paying for $2 at like a pattern sale, but you're getting a lot for, I mean, I think really you're getting a lot for your money. You're getting something that's been rigorously tested and that's going to teach you how to sew versus, you know, uh, something that, Maybe assumes your knowledge. Yeah. Assumes that you already know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that right there is a really big difference. The assumption that you already know what all of these marks mean. Um, Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. That's a big difference. So, um, okay. Uh, I wanted to, oh, I wanted to ask about print. So you, um, took some of your back catalog and made some new ones as well and, um, have print patterns out now. And, uh, and that's a huge deal. And we talked about the, the small business loan um, to, ma- to afford it because it's expensive to invest in print. And I wonder why you decided to go for it. It was a few things. I think, I, I, like, I'll, t- I'll be honest, I think I really, I'm not, I'm not professionally trained. This is something that I've, like, really taught myself how to do. And I wanted people to take me seriously. Um, I think there can be a little bit of judgment about people who are self-taught and I know how good my product is. I know how much time and effort and testing and all of that stuff goes into it. And I think going to print does give you a credibility. Um, In addition to that, I think there's something really lovely about somebody walking into a shop that maybe doesn't read blogs. Maybe they're walking down the street, you know, they're in Seattle and they walk by district fabric and they're like, Oh, I've, I want to sew. Yeah. Sewing. That looks like fun. And they walk in and they pick up a pattern. Um, and that's the thing that they use, you know, or they're like, jeans, I didn't know I could make jeans. I think there's something very appealing about that transaction. So I think it was the combination of reaching out to people who I couldn't maybe get to ordinarily because they're not online, wanting my business to be kind of reputable and, um, credible And the third is also with print patterns, I can do more complicated big patterns because people, you know, like a coat, I just released a coat pattern in the fall and it's 80 pages to print at home, but you can buy the paper pattern and you don't have to worry about printing. So it gives me a little bit more flexibility in terms of the kind of patterns that I offer. So it was kind of those three things um, that led to the print decision. Um, And it's definitely been interesting. There's been a huge learning curve. I'm not shipping from Canada. I'm, I have a courier that brings my packages to the U.S. So all of my U.S. packages are actually shipped using the United States Postal, Postal Service. Dealing with international shipping has been its own thing. Um, ha- having a wholesale system and working with independent stores and I'm starting to work with one distributor has been a huge learning curve. Um, it's really kind of changed my business. On the other hand, when I was working on my business plan and looking at the numbers and trying to figure out like, okay, how am I going to afford this? I was laughing because I was looking at my sales last year of my projections of what I thought paper patterns were going to actually 
um, take up of my sales. And I was so wrong. Like, I really thought that they were going to, like, they were going to exceed PDF patterns in terms of sales, but that's not the case. Like, they're, 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 you know, a decent part of the sales that I make on a monthly basis, but PDFs still sell far more than the print patterns do. Except when I have like a big paper, and I, this, I'm not speaking for every other company, but at least for mine, it could change when I have like, you know, it does change when I have a big launch, like a big new pattern comes out or, you know, you have sales and stuff like that. But I would say, yeah, for the most part, it's still PDF mostly. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much of that is because people have come to associate you as a person who creates PDFs. And so they assume and come there directly for that or, yeah, or how much of that is just the nature of the way we buy things now and what we expect. So I don't know. Um, but that is interesting to hear. Um, and so are you going to continue? I mean, do you feel like? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have, yeah, I have no plans to stop. I think I'm probably not going to go to print for every single pattern just because it is expensive and the smaller, you know, I have a couple ideas for smaller, maybe slightly simpler sewing patterns that you could print out with like 20 or 30 pages and it would take 20 minutes to assemble. Um, so it doesn't necessarily make sense. And I, I have so many ideas that I'm like, if I actually want to do all of these, there's absolutely no way I'm going to go to print for it. And there's actually no way I have room in my apartment for all of this stock. So, um, yeah, it's just kind of picking my battles Mm -hmm. and doing a little mix of both, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, so who do you admire right now in the sewing scene or in the creative small business scene? It doesn't have to be sewing necessarily, but who is doing something that you feel like, wow, everything they do, I really love it. You know, it's really new or it's fresh, it's innovative. Does anybody come to mind? Um, well, I think I have two kind of cliche answers to that. And I would say Serene Mitnick is, I love her, like genuine, like, like actual love we've we've become friends in person and I think she's just she's so loving like just warm and kind and generous with everything that she knows and I think the way that she's running her Colette is incredibly inspiring she's not settling on her laurels it's I feel like every six months they have some new exciting idea that they're pursuing and now you know Seamwork I think is like the most exciting sewing publication happening right now uh the podcast is really great I just I find her kind of relentless um that sounds bad, but like quest to constantly be trying new things to be really inspiring. Um, and then I think Jen at Grainline is really doing exciting things with her business too. It's really exciting to see. Um, I think she stayed, her brand and voice has stayed very consistent, but it's just really fun to see them grow and, and see how consistent the product stays very consistent, but you can just tell that they're becoming more successful and, um, she's been really fun to, to follow as well. So, I mean, in my industry, I would say that those are the two people that I kind of admire the most. Um, I also really love Named. Um, they're a Finnish pattern company. Um, I think they have a really great brand identity and, um, I like the idea of doing a collection. And so I always get really inspired by their lookbooks and the way that they style everything. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Those are great suggestions. And that brings me to our recommendation list. Um, so I asked you to, Tell me a few things that you are enjoying right now or find useful or would recommend to other creative people. And you have three here that are good ones. So we're going to start with the first one, which is um, the co-schedule app. I hear great things about this one. I haven't actually explored it myself, but maybe I should. So you tell should. us about it. <laughs> you should. Okay. So um, blog, like, you know, when you blog a lot, it, like maintaining a blog calendar can be really con- like annoying and frustrating. And I was using Google Calendar for a while, but it's just, it wasn't very intuitive and I wasn't really following it. So basically, CoSchedule is a blog and social media scheduling app that 
you can use from within, you can go into the co-schedule and set up your editorial calendar for the month. You can schedule tweets, you can schedule Facebook posts, but within the app, you can actually create um, WordPress drafts. Um, So you can, when you're like, okay, uh, Monday, I'm going to do a tutorial on interfacing, you can make a WordPress draft and then it it sits in the co-schedule calendar and you can move it around and it never gets published, but you actually create the post. Then when you're in WordPress and you're blogging, at the bottom of each post, there's like a little section where you can schedule the post to be posted to Twitter and Facebook. And as you know, like when you're blogging, a lot of stuff gets lost. So what you can do is have the post um, and you can generate like custom text and stuff. So it's not like this spammy thing that's getting pushed. Um, you can schedule tweets and you can schedule like as many as you want. So if you want to reschedule that post to run in six months, you can do it. And what I love about it is that it's all in one place. So I'm not using like a million different apps to do this. It's like one app that does all of these things. And can you so, get it on your phone or is it just on the desktop? No, if they have it on the phone. I don't do any blogging stuff on my phone, but it does link to Evernote. Um, so there's like, yeah, so, you know, I have like a idea file on Evernote that I can kind of cross pollinate between all of these apps. So I don't know if it has a phone application, but it's all, I, I love the desktop application. Okay. And the WordPress drafts. So if you write a draft in CoSchedule for your WordPress blog, when you open WordPress, it's there? Yes. Nice. Okay. Yeah. And how much does it cost? Do you happen to know off the top of your head? Like it's about-, about $20 US. I think that there's different payment. I think I'm paying like the $20 personal one. And that's, per, um, and is I, that per month? Per month. And I think that's cheaper when you buy a year, but I really did try it because at first I was like $20 a month. And you know, you know, if you own a small business, like I just feel like I'm getting nickeled and dimed all the time. Like everything I want to use costs money and everybody's moving to the subscription service. So it can get a little frustrating. It's like, oh, like another $20 a month. But that one has really proven to be absolutely worth the money. Nice. I tried Edgar. I don't know if you looked into Edgar when you were choosing. Um, but Edgar is a little bit more expensive, I think. And um, it is a monthly charge like that. And it does allow you to schedule out all of your social media updates and to do customized, you know, text that you can write about each one. Um, and you can schedule them far in, in advance and all of that good stuff. It doesn't have that WordPress piece to it. Um, and I just felt like it was more than I needed. So I ended up not continuing and actually ended up getting a refund because <laughs> I was like, I can't do this. But um, I mean, I liked it. I could understood how it worked, but it just felt like it was it was more for somebody who was like a social media manager for a larger company than mine. Um, but I like the idea of having that uh, editorial calendar possibility in there too. So it has more functionality, it sounds like. Yeah. And it's been great for my assistant and I because we can kind of get on the same page about that. And I would I think they have a free trial too. So you don't have to necessarily pay for it before you just to give it a try. And is your assistant virtual or is she? She's IRL. Uh, she's amazing. Nice. I actually don't know how I functioned without her. Can I um, ask how you found her? I found her through the blog. Um, I had hired somebody kind of randomly. I'd, I'd given a talk at the university on like running a creative business. And there was this really keen student in the front row. And I thought I really liked her energy. And I was like, oh, this will be great when I go to print. Ended up being a total disaster. Um, she was too young and like had never had a real job before and didn't know anything about sewing. So when I needed, when I, things kind of picked up and I needed somebody again and I hired on the blog and Alexis had taken a sewing class with me last year. And as soon as I read her email, I remembered her and yeah, we've just, she's amazing. She does all this stuff that I don't have time to do and she loves doing it. And it's just freed up my brain to be more creatively thinking and doing more business strategy stuff. 
Um, and it's just nice to have somebody in the office too. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. I just wondered how people, you know, people always wonder like, how do you find somebody? And that's, that's a good story. So, yeah. um, okay. And then if you have a podcast recommendation, so if people listening to this podcast, they might like this podcast as well. It's called Dear Sugar. Yeah. So if anybody's read Wild by Cheryl Strayed, um, it was like one of my favorite nonfiction books from the last couple of years. She used to write um, an advice column called Dear Sugar. I can't remember the magazine. Um, and the, there's a collection of her. She was kind of, It was her pseudonym for a long time. Um, and there's a collection. You can actually buy a book that is the collection of all of this advice she gave. And it's the most like beautiful, empathetic, wise, amazing advice in the entire universe. So I'd already read this book and it's something that I've given to people many times. Like somebody will be struggling with something and there will be like a letter from Dear Sugar that exactly like deals with that issue. And so I'll give them a copy of the book. So she started a podcast with the original Dear Sugar um, writer, Steve Almond. And so it's an advice call. It's an advice podcast. So it's not like Savage Love. People don't call in. They write letters. And so they read the letter out loud and then they give this beautiful, wise, kind, loving advice. And they have guests like Lena Dunham and my favorite writer, George Saunders, came in to like give co-advice. It's really, really great. I love that podcast. Okay. That is a good one. I have not listened to it. Um, so I will give it a try. It sounds terrific. I heard an interview with her on the long form podcast that you might enjoy. She talks all about Dear Sugar and about writing the book and all of that good stuff, but I haven't actually listened to her own podcast. So that's cool. Um, good one. And then you have one more, which is, um, some recipes and it, they're on serious eats, but they're by a particular author. Is that right? J. Kenji Lopez Alt? Yes. So I used to be a really ambitious home cook. Um, I used to have these huge dinner parties. I was like known for like kind of going over the top and being this kind of host and making all this crazy food. And I would come home from work and like dirty every dish in the house. And then I discovered Zoe and started eating ramen three nights a week. Like it really took over. So my cooking has really kind of, I've been part of my um, plan for this year of kind of having more of a work-life balance is cooking again. And so I don't know if you ever read the cooking magazine Cooks Illustrated. Yeah. But okay. So Cooks Illustrated, for those of you who don't know, is basically they have this thing called America's Test Kitchen. And so if they're going to make fried chicken, they're going to make fried chicken a million different ways. It's like and science. Gonna, yeah. It's like science. Like, and then they're going to tell you like the ultimate way to like make fried chicken. Yes. But there's this kind of like prairie home companion vibe to Cook's Illustrated that it can be like a little like twee sometimes. So I stopped subscribing to Cook's Illustrated. But J. Kenji Lopez-Alt on Serious Eats has that same kind of methodical scientific approach to cooking, but he's a really great writer. Um, he's really funny. And literally every single recipe that he's put on that website is like the best thing you've ever had in your life. Like the meatloaf recipe is like mind-blowing. It's so good. And so now I don't even really look at anything else. I'll just Google like, what do I feel like eating? Hamburgers. Hamburgers, J. Kenji Lopez-Alt and see his recipe on Serious Eats and it'll be like the best hamburger ever. So um, I definitely recommend that for like home cooks. That is a great resource. Mostly kind of American comfort food, which is my favorite kind of food to cook. Um, but I would definitely suggest checking that out. And, you know, talking about a crowded marketplace um, and having it be difficult to be heard and also difficult to even know what to choose, food blogging is gigantically yeah. crowded. And almost all of us now Google recipes or look on Pinterest for a recipe, but it's so hard to know because everyone's got beautiful photos now and everyone's yeah. got a SEO optimized blog now and everyone's yeah. got this, you know, it's just so wonderful looking and it's impossible to know if it's good or not. And so we end up in this 
spot where, you know, having a recommendation or being able to pay for something again is worth it. Um, he also, sorry, I would also say that if anybody's interest likes his cooking, he just released a cookbook that I haven't, it's, it's quite expensive in Canada, so I haven't purchased it yet, but it's like on my list and it's a huge cookbook and I'm actually my, I don't know, maybe it'll be my treat this week to get it because I really, really want it. But then he also has a cookbook. Someone needs to get that for you. That sounds like something you need. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Heather, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Walshie Naps podcast. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much, Abby. I've been a longtime listener, so it was a real honor to be on. Yay. And if people want to catch up with you or they just want to send you a message about something they heard today, where should they do that? So they can email me, which is heather at closetcasefiles.com. I'm also on Instagram at closetcasefiles or the blog, which is closetcasefiles.com. Okay, super. And you've been listening to the Walshy Naps podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Visit my blog, walshynaps.com, where you can sign up for my email newsletter to get the best in sewing, blogging, and small business delivered right to your inbox each week. And if you enjoy the show, tell a friend about it. Today's episode was sponsored by Amy Berrickman, founder of Indigo Junction. AmyBerrickman.com is your resource for vintage inspiration, including digital fabric and textile art and sewing and craft patterns and books. Amy inspires makers to explore their own creative spirit and experiment with the latest sewing and crafting techniques. Keep up with Amy as she shares her ideas and inspiration at AmyBerrickman.com and IndigoJunction.com. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.